Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey y'all, it's Joy Marie. And I'm Courtney. Welcome back to Job Logs. Yes, your career confidence are back. Hashtag group check girlfriends. Yes, and coming up today, we have the amazing women of the PhD of this podcast. Yes, putting us all to shame. They have a podcast exploring careers in academia and STEM and the humanities. Yeah, so whether you're an undergrad, have an advanced degree, or just thinking about school, they will be dropping gems on navigating careers in higher education and more. So stay tuned. Yes. But first, y'all know we like to start these episodes with a clock in. Just see how we're doing personally and professionally. Mm-hmm. Courtney, how are you? I'm awesome. You know, nesting, getting my apartment together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this um, podcast episode has me reflecting because I was looking at the show notes and you were thinking about like going back to school. Mm-hmm. And I am coping with like dread <laughs> around <laughs> school. <laughs> I think like when you decide to go to grad school like you say like oh two years three years it's nothing no it's like it's a commitment and you're like (laughs) in a completely different place than when you decided to go to Mm. school so it's like I have on one end I have this like immense regret (laughs) going back (laughs) to school but also on the flip side because I have an interesting trajectory because I just got a new job right. while in school. So right. part of me is like, why am I going back there? Mm. Is this worth it? Like, why did I do right, this? Right, because you got the reward already. Right. <laughs> but it's like, you don't really know like when mm. what, what gets you your success. Like, yeah. is it the fact that I had, I was pursuing my master's on my resume? Is it because of my job experience? Is it because of this podcast? Like, mm. I don't know. So it's just like... What's responsible? Who knows? I'm going to finish this because I want my piece of paper at this point. Yeah, I but. feel you. You don't know, but you just add in lots of different levers right. people can latch right. on Receipts. to. So That's listen. what I'm here for. The I receipt. love that. Um, so I am here from a 4 a.m. flight from Chicago Bless this morning. I know. But I was actually there for an MBA graduation. My friend was graduating How from apropos. business school. And I have to tell you, I was reading through the little commencement booklet some of those people have so many degrees. It is Are sick you of it. Yes, like there were people getting their MBA who had undergrad, a master's, and a PhD already, and, and the MBA was the fourth. MBA. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so listen, there are some very incredibly smart people out there. And you know, I was sitting there and um, I've been thinking about business school mm-hmm. on and off. And it's like, the thing is, I was a terrible student undergrad Mm. I just don't like school I I feel like I'm a smart person but I don't like book learning and school learning although Uh all of my friends in business school have told me that it's a different type of learning environment based on more case studies and group work Mm -hmm. Um, so that's motivational but I mean my my thoughts and my dabbling around business school (laughs) is all around more access Uh to um, a network who can help elevate me like entrepreneurially and I don't know just like really smart people who you know 10 years 
from now are going to be like building amazing companies and doing great things like having right. kind of plugging into that world a bit more yeah I definitely think the people are a big part yeah the decision to go back to school but listen that price tag though I mean are there ways I can meet those people without paying $120,000 <laughs> I mean I will say as a recipient of a scholarship mm. apply like I know like when I was doing undergrad I just didn't think because, you know, you look at the deadlines, and you're like, boo. Yeah. I'm not doing all this <laughs> I don't have time for a for chance. <laughs> but, you know, I kind of narrowed it down to, mm. like, first of all, I made it really specific to me. So mm. I was like, woman of color mm. in media going back to school. Yes. Who has started her career. Like, and there were for grants me. for that. And there were grants for that. That's amazing. And then I said, okay, don't waste my time for less than such and such mm. amount of money. And that kind of, like, narrowed my focus. Okay. So, you know. Go get this money. People are giving it away. All right. Up first, we're doing rants, rates, and reviews where we're highlighting products, services, tools, experience, anything that's helping our professional life and some stuff that we could do without. Mm -hmm. So, Joy, what you got for us today? You know, I think I need to do my first rant of the year. Right. I made it halfway through without one. So. Let it off your chest. Um, my rant is, you know, we're talking about education and academia, and I think that sometimes, you know, some of us, we <laughs> learn a thing, we read a book, and we think we know everything. Wow. So my rant is for know-it-alls. Nobody likes a know-it-all. <laughs> Don't be the type of girl who, you know, you're in a meeting with your coworkers and they say something and you got to jump in and be like, well, actually, I think the word you were looking uh. for was like... <laughs> That is the worst. And actually, I thought about this because um, I've been binging The Office, mm -hmm. which is like my favorite show of all time. And Oscar was definitely oh, yeah. the office know-it-all in That's the U.S. So office. Shady. He was the guy that was always like, well, actually, <laughs> correcting people and jumping in. So, um, but I mean, going back to like an actual business um, yes. kind of case for... <laughs> From a little rant, I feel like good leaders don't necessarily always feel the need to be right or mm -hmm. insert or assert that they're right. Yes. But like being a good leader and being a good even team member is really about giving people the space in the room to share their opinions and perspectives and sometimes be wrong. Like you don't have to jump in and correct yeah. them every time. Or help them get to that place on their own. Like mm. ask the right question. Mm. You don't have to say that's stupid, but you can <laughs> ask a question where someone answers and the answer are stupid and you've done your job <laughs> I like that you're right um, but what are you doing this week I am talking about um, something I'm reading right now that's really in tune with our last episode where we mm -hmm. talked about anxieties Foucault's a philosopher mm -hmm. why am I reading this over summer break is the true true question <laughs> Um, but he's a philosopher that deals a lot with power dynamics. So mm. if you ever read about, like, prisons or governments, mm. they probably bring him up. He's also cray-cray. Oh, you really? you really read into him. Is he contemporary or he's from back in the day? Don't ask me questions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he talks about, I'm reading in particular, um, this, I guess it's an article. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called Technologies of Self. Mm. And he looks at historic methods and strategies for transforming the, your soul, your mm. thoughts, the ways of being in pursuit of just happiness, basically. Mm. Living this full, wise 
life. And it gets really deep. Mm. But the thing that stood out to me, especially after our last episode, was the importance of taking care of self. Mm. And it's like from ancient Western philosophy. And he like tracks it from then through like Christianity to now, mm. where it was a bit, it was really important to take care of yourself. Yeah. And knowing yourself was a part of that. And somewhere along the line, we flipped to like, I have to know myself before I can start taking care of myself. Mm. His big thing is like, don't be so obsessed with like, oh, just because it's modern and it's right now, it's the right way to go about things. Mm. Like, look to the past mm. and kind of figure out what's the best route mm. and it stood out to me that back in the day day back in Socrates time and all of that they were really intentional about taking care of themselves and it was like an action something you did so mm. in some ways it was external where you have a practice of communicating about yourself which sounds familiar these days about talking about yourself with your mentor mm. journaling writing to yourself writing letters to friends just talking about like how you feel what you think about what you're doing to take care of yourself what would you do different mm. some of it is internal where you're reflecting on this is how I handle something today this is how I yeah. can do different and yeah. it's not like a judgment thing it's just like I'm improving myself right like how would I handle it different yeah yeah and my biggest takeaway is that being intentional and making sure that you're managing yourself like it doesn't happen by just like oh you're living and somehow you figure right, out that right. this is how to be a better person like now yeah. you have to like take the time and manage yourself yeah Okay, guys, we have a special treat for you today. We're thrilled to be talking with PH Divas. Their podcast is kind of a candid conversation, but for academia. Yes. And they talk about developing their careers in both STEM and the humanities. So thrilled to be joined by Dr. Liz Wayne and Dr. Christine, who goes by Zine Yao, who are both co-hosts. Pleasure to be here. Well, virtually anyway. <laughs> the Twitter bios are on point. <laughs> so could you both kind of give us a summary of what it is that you do? I'm Dr. Liz Wayne, and I am a biomedical engineer. So what this means for me is I am interested in finding ways to use your immune cells, your own immune cells, to deliver drugs to disease. And in particular, I'm interested in loading your immune cells, which are already going to cancer at um, pretty astonishing rates. And since they're already going there, adding drugs onto them like cargo, and then laying them, and then using them as a drug delivery vehicle, which will have far better efficiency than just injecting the nanoparticle alone into your body. And so those are kind of cellular engineering, cancer drug delivery things that I work on. So while Liz is helping to cure cancer, I'm over in English literature. So I'm Dr. Christine Yao. I go by Zine. And my particular field is early and 19th century American literature, where I look at questions of race, gender, and sexuality through the lenses of history and of science and the history of the law. So some of the questions that I take up, for example, has to do with the long history of collaborations and coalition between peoples of color uh, during these time periods, because I think that there sometimes tends to be too much of an emphasis on what marginalized people, people of color, gender minorities, and so forth, have to do to 
connect with the mainstream and usually like uh, with whiteness in this particular case. And often it's so much, the question is so much figured around like how do the marginalized people represent their pain so that white people take pity on them. And like that's not a, I'm not really interested in that conversation as much as like what sort of uh, political collaborations happen, say with between black and indigenous people, Asian and black people um, within this time period. And so I'm, I'm generally interested in this sort of question, which I think is really important today, about how people are motivated to social and political action because of, of literature. Like, how do we represent? How are things represented so that people feel like they can make enough of a connection to create type of social change? And for me, the questions that revolve around movements um, that we see now and LGBTQ community as well as Black Lives Matter come to a lot of the debates that happened in the 19th century and early America about the role of sympathy and the way that the legacy of particularly um, abolition had on how those conversations were shaped. Work. (laughs) Y'all can't see us, but we're over here snapping and amazing, amazing. So how did you two decide to pursue careers in academia? Like, it sounds like you both are really passionate about what you do. What what was the catalyst for that decision? So I think, although it sounds like I, like now I have a very precise field and question that I'm interested in, of course, when most of us start our BAs, um, we definitely don't really know what we want to do yet. So I'd say that when I initially started my education, it was definitely motivated by a love of literature that only through the more I studied it, did I really realize what questions really mattered to me and what debates really mattered to me. For me, I think this came out of a sense of political urgency. So I think it's important to note that although I study American literature precisely because I'm interested um, in what's happening in the U.S. today through the lens of uh, the American past, I'm actually Canadian. So to me, what's fascinating is precisely because the power of U.S. politics and culture cannot be ignored. So I think it's something that needs to uh, needs to be analyzed. And and also, I feel deeply invested because I have so many friends who's, who personally and historic and um, their own histories are bound up in a lot of the questions that, that I analyze. And so for me, there's a type of political urgency, both to say, like, what can I contribute to these conversations? But also, how can then I bring, say, to my teaching? And what does it mean to, to educate my students so that they can go forth? And also try to make the world a better place. Yeah. So we are so different. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Not only different in terms of what we study and how we describe things, um, but um, in terms of how we got into our field. So for me, I want to say I was a weird child. And I mean that to say that I wanted to study physics when I was 11. I kind of knew I'm going to study physics in college. And I knew by I ended high school that I wanted to get a PhD in physics. Now, I didn't get a PhD in physics. I got a PhD in environmental engineering, but that's what I wanted to do. And a lot of that was because when I was 15, I met someone who had a PhD. And I saw how they went into lab at 10, and they came back and had, were able to have lunch with me. It was a relative, and I was also very fortunate to have a relative who had a PhD. Um, but I saw their life, and I thought, I want this kind of life. I want to be able to ask, answer questions that I think are cool and interesting for the sake of just being cool and interesting. And I saw a possibility model, and I thought, I'm going to get a PhD. This is what I'm going to do. As I got older, my choice got more informed. 
and my questions that I want to answer got more refined and I found more purpose in the work that I was doing. It seems like when you are kind of pursuing that specific of a field of study, there's a lot of commitment, a lot of discipline to that. Um, and it's a lengthy investment time-wise too, right? It takes a couple of years. So, you know, as you're sort of crafting and honing in on the fields and the areas of interest to you, how do you keep that focus um, and kind of like that energy going? <laughs> it's, it's such a personal journey. On the one hand, I think that um, it's really difficult to make the jump from undergrad to grad precisely because, at least in my experience in the hum- humanities, I feel that you know, the way that we, we, our relationship to our object of study is um, often a thing that we love that we've done since childhood because we've read these things or we've studied these um, things. But, but engaging with it on the graduate level requires completely rewiring how you think about these things. And so in the field of literature, obviously, like, there's so many people who love to read books. But when you enter graduate studies, it's not just about liking to read books. You have to be able to do tons of research on what everyone has ever said in conversations about these books and figure out how to use theories and use research to enter the conversation. And so I've definitely seen a lot of people that uh, get alienated from that, from that um, precisely because like the thing that they thought they loved turned out not to be what they wanted in the field. I, I, what I study has to do with like issues that I care about and things that come from the people I, I care about as well. And so a lot of, for me, studying literature has been about a journey of, of self-discovery and my own self-development. I think the default image of an English professor is usually an old white guy wearing tweeds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I have to admit that even now, I have, I have never had a teacher or a professor who was an Asian woman mm. um, or a woman of Asian descent. Like now in the field, I've, I've met other people, but I've never had the experience of being taught by one. So that is like one thing that motivates me. And so through the study of literature, I've had to confront questions of like, what does it mean to be like, be a woman, be a woman of color? What does it mean to, um, to be an ally for, for identities that I'm not a part of? And for me, exploring these questions that are really important to my life um, are things that I find that literature allows me to explore more deeply. And I want to help, help to expand both the field of that research as well as help to teach my students how to be critical of their own lives and feel engaged socially and and culturally as well. So I wonder, because I've encountered something similar where I have a great passion for writing, but then when I was a freelance writer, it just became this other thing. Like it wasn't just my passion, like it was about money and it. I stopped doing it because it kind of turned that the fun aspect of it off. So I wonder what's the difference between someone who's just passionate, um, lifetime learner, wants to dive deep into topics, and someone who's pursuing this professionally? Like what's the end game? What makes you take that extra step? I think that what makes that extra step happen is to know whether you're excited to be in conversation with other people and and also to know that like there's a lot of stakes in terms of that conversation because as excited as you might be to do those things, you're also sort of stepping into a whole other social and professional realm. It's mm-hmm. being able to then think about the things that you love in a completely different context and realize the thing that you love has people who perhaps because they love it have dedicated their whole lives to do it and have done all this research. And so I think that there's a positive way that you can 
see all the existing literature and research and the gatekeepers, which can be quite inhibiting for professional sense, as part of a conversation that you're trying to enter with other people. Although on the topic of love, I think that's something in the humanities that people struggle with, which is, as I've described your profession, it sometimes feels like a vocation. And because of that, I think that our our jobs can be open to abuse because people don't know how to treat it because it's not like a nine to five job. So it's very difficult to put up boundaries, for example, mm-hmm. or, or to separate your, your work persona from your personal, personal life because those things are so deeply intertwined. Yeah. And that's a really interesting point. I mean, when you think about kind of vocations and professional paths in academia, I think a lot of us go straight to, you know, a professor um, or someone who's like teaching. What are, what, well, first of all, I'd love to know kind of specifically what you two are both doing because you're on very different sides of the spectrum here. But then also, what are some other sort of alternate paths that don't yeah. frequently get Yeah, and I'd love to, um, Liz, if you could start us off because when people think of STEM, they're thinking like high pay or startups. Or, so why academia and STEM? What's <laughs> happening? <laughs> oh, God. Um, one of the things that I've had to reckon with is the fact that getting a PhD in itself is a privilege, which is to say that we are spending a lot of time. I spent most of my 20s in the basement with mice and uh, <laughs> a microscope. And, and it feels like a lot of commitment um, because I see a lot of people, like at my age, and maybe they're married, they, they have a home, you know, with, with dogs, and they're kind of like settling down. They know what a 401k is, and there's often a discrepancy in terms of who can really pursue what they love, what they enjoy, that becomes based on can you afford to, can your family support you long enough to allow you to spend that time to do that. And so people often end up doing jobs that have nothing to do with what they actually studied in their PhD, but kind of rely on the skill sets they developed during their PhD, like as an entryway. When I look at my friends as examples, um, there are a lot of people who are in startups who are uh, really helping manage a lab. There are some people who continue their their academic dreams um, and they do postdocs. There are people who go into science policy. There are people who um, go into administration, actually. So there's and, uh, kind of problematic at times, but there is a growing pipeline of job opportunities for people who want to remain in academia but not do bench work anymore, where they're administering grants or they're um, directing programs to help students to increase retention within programs or to run uh, the, the funding off of other big grants. People do science communication work. People become science writers. People leave science altogether and go into management consulting, um, health yeah. consulting. They go into banking. So there's a lot of things you can do. Awesome. Yeah, very fascinating. Because you don't always think about, I think, all of those different avenues. At least I don't from the outside looking in. I kind of always kind of gravitate to, oh, you're going to be a professor or do research. Um, Right. And we all can't. That's kind of the problem. Um, There's no way. What is some statistic? I think less than 8% of science PhDs who start can actually become faculty. There just aren't enough jobs. People aren't hiring. The tenure track in academia is actually decreasing. And mm-hmm, so there's, mm-hmm. there's, but there's not a real conversation about what to do with all these PhDs that we're generating. So this idea that the PhD automatically means professor is still something that happens 
in academia, but it's something that's slowly changing, mostly because it has to, because we can't all faculty. There just aren't enough jobs. I know a lot of brilliant people who did their PhDs at amazing schools who really struggled post-PhD when they um, decided not to go on in academia and looking at alternate routes. Because we don't, typically humanities departments don't tend to have industry connections. And so what we're, we're seeing right now is like some people are able to successfully mold themselves to, to fit uh, new careers or new forms of writing and so forth. But I, have, I know a lot of people who are highly, very talented, very hardworking people where the PhD works against them because people think that you're overeducated mm-hmm. for a job. Yeah. Um, and I think another struggle is because even as faculty jobs are decreasing and awareness of the need to think about what we call alt-ac, alternative academic careers is increasing. Nonetheless, our programs are being run by people who both chose and were successful in the academic, uh, in academia. And so they're sort of at a loss too in terms of like how to make connections for us and how to train us, even though they are trying their best. And I think that a lot of programs now are scrambling to figure out um, what exactly do they do. And, it, and it's also been argued that it's even unethical, the number of PhDs that are being produced right now, given um, how dire the job market is and how exploited adjunct labor is. Mm. And what specifically are some challenges that you both have faced in your careers as women and as women of color in the space? Uh, yeah, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, do you have an hour or a day? <laughs> <laughs> I, as a kid, believed I was very smart. And as I told you before, I wanted to study physics. And I think there's a space in which um, you haven't realized that racism and sexism are real things that can, like, stop your success. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, like, so you, you see things, you see microaggressions, but you don't know it's a microaggression yet. You're just like, oh, that was weird. Wait, I just said that I, I, ha- I was having an issue. I didn't want to quit. Why are you asking me if I want to quit? When I first started, I kind of thought I'm going to take over the world. And I'm like, I'm going to wow everyone with my genius. I'm going to work really hard. And there were a lot of things that happened that I didn't really equate. I did not put the label to this is what institutional racism or sexism or a combination of both um, or even classism look like. Your mentor, your, your professor that you work for is like your, your dad. Or people use like, some, you know, wedding analogy a lot for this. And you choose one like that for life. And so if you can't get along with them, you're essentially not going to be successful. Um, they're mm. going to stop. They can actually stop you from getting your degree. Mm. Wow. Um, and then you start to see people who um, get along with their advisors much better. And you're like, oh, you can take a vacation? They won't let me take a vacation. Oh, yeah. like you haven't been to work in like a week. But they didn't complain to you at all. And I haven't been to and I took off a day because I got sick and like I'm really getting the third degree and people are telling me that I didn't I'm not doing actual work. And so you mm. go through this evolution of like that's but that's not racism, that's not sexism. That's that's happening to everyone. And you fully realize, wait, that isn't happening to everyone. That's kind of happening to me. You have to move to that sphere and somehow find a way to attack the problems you can, but not acknowledge directly that work within the power that you have, which is always not a lot of power because a faculty member always has the power. And I think being a woman of color is like getting off a lot of those microaggressions and also as the higher up you go, 
um, you have younger students who come to you because they don't know yet. Again, there's that stage of like something weird happening, but it's not racism. And you're like, nah, that's totally yeah. racism. <laughs> and how do you combat that? Like, what's the hashtag self care? <laughs> like, how do you deal? That's a really good question. And I think that, um, yeah. The sort of things that you guys do in your podcast is sort of similar to our coping and survival mechanisms. So again, part of, I think part of the podcast for, for me is not just sharing the conversations I have with Liz, but it is part of the survival mechanism about reaching out to other women of color and sharing your experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, like during my last year at Cornell, I put together a teaching support group for women of color graduate students. And we ended up recording a conversation for the podcast, but so much of that was about talking about the way that teaching evaluations are particularly known, notorious mm-hmm. for how sexist and racist they can be. Like uh, I remember one friend was talking about um, a complaint that she got on a teaching evaluation was that she was quote unquote too racially affiliated, which is because she's black. Okay. So on the one hand, I think that we really try informally to to um, bond together. And some, there's, I think in the humanities, like there's some clusters that one might say are like more socially conscious or even woke than others. So for example, in American studies um, at the major conference, they actually specifically have an event for uh, people of color scholars to to network. And then they have another one for um, women and um, and queers to, to, net, to network as well. So there's places where like the, the need for this is recognized. So they, they partition those spaces away. And so having these types of networking events allows us to a few women of color to find each other and say like, what does it mean to support each other's work, read each other's writing, give each other feedback um, and also cite each other uh, because that's sort of, a, that is one of those things that creates you as an entity in the academic world. I also would say that uh, I think an additional problem in the humanities, on the one hand, it may seem that, as Liz put it, like it's about also finding a vocabulary to talk about the microaggressions you experience. At the same time in the humanities, there tends to be a type of smugness that, of course, we know more than STEM, which is very, very dubious. And sometimes because of that, people are very reluctant to admit that, hey, wait, our faculty is also majority white or I know. (laughs) Yes, we have women, but they're almost all white women and things like that. So there's a type of there's a different type of reluctance to address these issues because they want to pretend that like, okay, if you're a white straight man teaching a woman of color, that's not quite the same as having a woman of actually supporting women of color in the profession. So sometimes I think people find substitute texts for supporting actual people. And that's something I particularly see in my field. I will go to a panel, say, on indigenous writing or um, slave narratives. And I look around the room and then I will be the only person of color there. And so there's a type of disparity that happens. I'm interested to just to circle back earlier to when you were talking about how just PhD programs are dealing with adjusting to 
the new job market and uh, find the lack of jobs. How are you redefining your benchmarks of success? And like, how is that changing for people who are interested in pursuing this, but maybe a little fearful or don't understand how the programs are adjusting for the future? When I started grad school, it seemed like people were able to get jobs in industry, no problem. Not even if you had a paper published, cool. If you didn't, no problem. When I got to the stage of looking for jobs because I was finishing my dissertation, I had a rude awakening because they don't want someone straight out of grad school. So either you were overqualified because you had a PhD or you were underqualified because you only had a PhD. And Mm. that was really hard for me to stomach that I still needed. So the PhD, even though I spent five years working in a lab where they're very great skills I learned there. I had no work experience. Mm. And you start off with zero work experience, even with a PhD. And all the job apps I was seeing for science jobs in in industry wanted one to two years of work experience. And that was hard for me. That was hard for a lot of my colleagues. Um, because the way academia is currently set up, and I think it would be interesting for people who are considering academia, they like you were mentioning, we study our own specialized fields. So we know something, one thing really, really well. But the job market requires you to have other skill sets. And mm. you don't get taught that. You really have to look for that. You have to be the one that organizes um, an experience where you learn how to write by going to uh, science writing, uh, like interning somewhere. You have to set those opportunities yourself. And you should, because if you don't, you're going to graduate and not have a job, not have any work experience. And you're going to be looking yeah. at yourself like many of my friends did and going, I have a PhD. Why can't I find a job? And I'm in STEM. Why can't I find a job? I mean, from what I'm hearing from you, it sounds like it's supplementing that like expertise and very specialized expertise in one area with kind of the job best practices Courtney, we talk about on the show all the time about like, you know, tapping into your network and sort of diversifying your skill set, both the hard and the soft skills and just getting out there and kind of being a well-rounded professional overall. So you're not like pigeonholed in one, just one area. Right. You can't just look up when you graduate and go, okay, I'm ready for a job because you're not qualified. Um, People, and I think it's a big disconnect between education and um, the workforce right now. And this is not even just for the PhD. Companies want you to have the skills before you get out of college. And the way college is taught is we don't teach you skills. You should learn skills on the job. We're going to teach you principles and coursework, and we're going to teach you about a subject. So that skill connection is missing, and it is putting people at a disservice. And actually, there's just a huge debate because people want more skills. But then, you know, academia, we're saying, no, we're not skilled. Like, you're diminishing our capacity to think for things sake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a broad spectrum. It's happening as a bachelor's um, because we don't train people. We don't give people skills, but the skills are companies want. They don't want to train you for two months. They want you to know how to hit the ground running so they don't take as much risk on you, which is why currently, when, well, when we were in college, you didn't have to work, well, maybe, let's say early 2000s, you didn't have to work every summer to have a job, whereas now, people, companies hire at least something like 40% of their workers during yeah. the internship of their, of their junior year. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, ladies, this has been incredible. We have to know, though, like, after your years of education and your research and all of your amazing work experience, when do you when do you know, like, I've made it? Like, this is the thing I set out to do. I'm here. I have arrived. <laughs> when does that happen? I think it sadly doubts me. I, I, I've heard that it never happens. Okay. So on the one hand, like being in academia means that you're committing to this life where you're, you're always researching, you're always going to be active, you're always going to be engaged. But per- because of that, benchmarks are always going to shift. Um, mm. Like, for example, you know, it's not necessarily you have your PhD, then you're getting your postdoc, then it's about getting your tenure track job, and then waiting to get tenure. And actually, this phenomenon is being more recognized is that even after people get tenure, there's something, there's like post-tenure depression that tends to happen. Um, mm. That being said, like, I think that academia is still, for all its faults, still has an, a special allure to it um, because it sort of offers, again, this, this type of exploration and specialization um, mm-hmm. that you can't really get in other places. Yeah, it's, it's sort of a, it's a very bittersweet thing to talk about because the things I study I love, but it doesn't mean it's going to love me back, so... You know, That's I'm true. still here because I want to be Professor Wayne. And I, in terms of the question of, like, how do we stay here and how do we stay focused? You know, like, I haven't always been focused, and I question all the time. But I use the question of am I in the right space as, like, a, like a, instead of fighting that questioning, I accept the questioning as part of the process of, if I weren't questioning, I would be more, I should be more scared if I'm not questioning. Um, mm-hmm. And questioning is what keeps me going because if I question and realize I have a gap somewhere, I go fill that gap. And I understand that I have this privilege of being, having gone to some great schools, having great mentors, having great access, and that I actually do still get to study what I love and have a living from that. And that's not trivial. Yeah. Well, that is beautiful, and we are so inspired. You know, I have learned a lot today. Yes. And just how much, like, the line, we, it's like this challenges, um, we share so much, like, between corporate and academia, mm-hmm. like, kind of, shall we all in the same struggle? <laughs> <laughs> but you, you ladies are definitely an inspiration we want to thank you so much for your time and chatting with us today and we know that you have inspired some other people out there who might be on the fence who might be feeling you know not have that confidence it's so beautiful to see two badass women of color out here killing it so thank you so much yeah and where can our listeners kind of learn more about you guys and follow what you're up to so you can find our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud, um, as well as Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter. Uh, we try to also support lots of other fantastic resources for higher education, particularly for people of color, women of color, and women in general. Um, so to try and, if you're curious to see what's happening in the world of academia, we try to share a lot of articles and news items about those things, as well as um, tips and tricks and things like that. PhDivas everywhere. Love it. Right, this is our favorite part of the show because we get to hear from you guys. Ask Job Blogs. Uh, we're going to address career and life 
questions submitted by our listeners. If you want some advice or a fresh perspective, uh, we got you covered. Just submit your question to us anytime at joblogs.com slash askjoblogs, or you can ring us up at 929-324-1090. So what's in the inbox today, Joy? Well, we have a very aptly timed question. Okay. It says, hey, guys, love the show. I love my job, and I've been given great opportunities right out of college, good networking, and I'm able to flex my skills. But I work in research, and there's a noticeable wall of how far I can go without a graduate degree. I'm in a catch-22 situation where I'd like to stay at my job and make more money for grad school, but I can't do as much as I'd like to do without higher education. My question is, if you are in my situation, what would you do? Do you have any advice for after applying and going through grad school that I should know before making the decision? Oh, Courtney, this is up your alley because (sighs) I not now nor ever have been (laughs) in grad school. I guess my check-in is like (laughs) coming back to bite me. Uh, Okay, so from the sound of this letter, it seems like it's an either-or situation for you. Like, you think you have to either quit your job and go full-time or stay at work and not get a degree. So I'm here to say that it is possible to go to grad school while juggling your job. Is it? It is very possible. I am living proof. Now, I go to school part-time, and Mm -hmm. that means I've taken on the understanding that it's going to take a little bit longer to finish my degree, Am I a little miffed about that as I watch the people <laughs> who I came in with graduate this June? Yes, I said I'm not going to your graduation. Get away from me. <laughs> but the point is, I also have about half the amount of debt that they do. Mm. So uh, think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a friend. I have a couple friends who go to school full time and work full time. Mm. I think that is insanity. Mm. So I think it's about... I mean, grad school is a sacrifice. Yeah. Straight up. Yeah. Financial sacrifice, time sacrifice. Yeah. So figure out, like, if you want this enough, and it sounds like it's integral to your career, so you may be doing it eventually. Yeah. Figure out what you're willing to sacrifice. Do you want to sacrifice financially and take on a whole bunch of debt? Do you want to sacrifice time? And for me, when school's in session, it's... I've negotiated that my weekends are gone. Mm. So I'm not I'm not coming home from work and doing schoolwork, mm. not mm. doing it. Mm. So I've just negotiated that, okay, brunch is not happening yeah. for these three months, yeah. four months, however long the yeah. semester is. So just figure out what you're willing to sacrifice and make the jump. Like, you can do it. Awesome. Good luck to you. Let us know how it goes. Hey guys, it's now time for Hired and Fired. This is the segment of the show where we serve up termination papers to people Mm -hmm. who are just trifling in pop culture media business or hiring papers (laughs) to folks who, you know, we are just standing for right now. So this week... We got a little bit of a... It's a joint firing. Yeah. Because we're both miffed. We're both disappointed. Little peeves. It's tripe. So... All Recently, right. it came to my attention via the Black Twitters <laughs> that um, one publication that it really pains me to have to talk about in this way, Ebony Magazine, which I grew up on, even in sub-Saharan Africa, we were what? getting Ebony? It. Yes. Okay. We were getting it in the mail. My parents are avid Ebony fans. 
I think actually because they went to school in Chicago, so that uh, makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, you know, we would get it in the mail, would read through it, grew up on it. But my darling Ebony apparently don't pay. Has not been paying its freelance writers. It's amazing. And full disclosure, I've written for Ebony. Have you? I you did. have. I did. Oh, it wait, was, hold was up. My first, like, hold it up. was first, like, my first national publication, I want to say. It was the first outlet where my granny was like, oh, okay. I yeah. know that. <laughs> um, I got paid. Um, <laughs> oh, good, good. I was about to say, this conversation was about to take a whole different spin. It take me a couple emails now. Mm. It took me a couple emails. Mm. But I got my money. Um, so if you're not up on the story. Yeah, let's do you some background. Yes. And I didn't even know how this started. I just yeah. saw the hashtag, hashtag Ebony O's, and didn't know. But what happened was um, a writer by the name of Jagger Blake, Black? Mm -hmm. Forgive me, sister. She wrote an article called Why Isn't Ebony Paying Its Black Writers mm -hmm. on the establishment. And this writer... The piece goes out, and all of a sudden, it's like the floodgate. It was uh -huh. like a culture of silence. Everybody was scared. Because like us, they didn't want to like drag Ebony. Dead, right. Because it's one of the places where a lot of people got their first start writing. Yep. Like, us black writers getting their first clips. And no one wants to say anything. But yep. it's come, people start sharing. Yeah. And it's like people who work at NPR. It's folks who wrote cover stories. It's people with blue checks by their names. All the verified. Listen, I was shocked. <laughs> Saying they submitted invoices, got no response. Now, I didn't realize how trifling this was getting. Mm. So the hashtag is trending. Ebony starts blocking writers. Blocking. Who are saying these things. People are tweeting saying, I did not get paid, and you block, block them. them. <laughs> Just you keep block tweeting them. your latest blog like it's nothing. <laughs> Then the guy, so if you don't know, Ebony Magazine was recently bought out mm -hmm. from Johnson Publishing, the black-owned company, by a private equity firm, Clearview Group, LLC. Well, Jackson from Clearview, um, their vice chairman, he gets in the mix when um, Jagger, the original writer, just mm -hmm. asked him for comment. At mm -hmm. first, he was silent, didn't get back to her. Well, then the timeline blows up. Jackson comes back and says... Um, love to chat. I hear you're the one of those reporters that like to tear down black businesses. Mm. Mm. Wrote this to this woman. Look, listen. Have y'all learned nothing from United <laughs> and Pepsi and everybody else? How many times do we have to tell y'all? Like, where is the PR person to take away your phone and say, sir, this is not how you not respond smart, to somebody you legally contractually <laughs> oh coins it's like terrible it's terrible and terrible. it's like it's doubly terrible because you are taking advantage yeah uh because you know that people like stand for this publication you know yeah. that people want to preserve its image you know we we are loyal we grew up on it people don't want to talk about it and taint the legacy but also it's exploitative to the freelancers because right. you know you got people meeting deadlines to submit the articles and then 
not paying them within the contractual period of time you have agreed to pay them. Right. And then to add insult to injury, not responding to the emails and then go on block, <laughs> block, block the poor souls on Twitter. Like that's, that is. So I'm very interested to see where their content is going to come mm. from moving forward. Listen, Ebony, love you and I hate to do this, but you got to go. You know, preserve the archives, but moving forward. I can't do it. Bye. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for rocking with us. We hope you're feeling a little bit brighter in the membrane after that. Okay. Amazing episode. The, uh, electro whatever. <laughs> Liz is going to kill me. Listen. <laughs> Go listen to their show because yes. they clearly got yes, it. Thank you that. so much to the PhDivas for joining us. Thank y'all for listening. As always, you can hit us up all over the web at jawblog, jawblogs.com. I am Cleave Out Loud all over the place. I'm Hamas Parker, two R's. Um, don't forget to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. We love it when y'all do. And we will see you next time. Later. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> 